me today is Catherine Pepinster. Catherine was editor of the tablets throughout the Benedict Papacy. She saw him in and she saw him out. She is also author of a book, The Keys and the Kingdom, The British and the Papacy from John Paul II to Francis. Catherine, welcome to the Tablet Podcast. Thank you, Ruth. Now, um, Catherine, what was it like editing the tablets throughout the papacy of Benedict? It was certainly eventful. There was always something to to write about because there were so many controversies during the time that, that he was the Pope. There just seemed to be so many sort of rows and... Um, clangers that he dropped. Then there there were also um, great pieces of theological writing. His encyclicals were always um, of interest and beautifully written. And of course, there was his state visit to the UK, which was um, a huge event for the the Catholic Church here. Um, He came and he beatified um, uh, John Henry Newman. Um, there, there was always something, and of course, um, to cap it all, we then we then ha- uh, had to report on his resignation. So, what which, a pontificate it was! Um, so, it was a papacy full of surprises, which is quite surprising in itself for someone who was fundamentally um, quite a conservative. Which surprised you most, his election or his resignation? I think I think his his resignation definitely. Um, I remember before he became Pope, in in a year or so before it, uh, he at the time of of John Paul II's final years as, as Pope, when he was becoming increasingly infirm, uh, it emerged that he had Parkinson's disease, and, and he was he was clearly struggling. And the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger really came to the fore then. And, and so we had we had run some major pieces of analysis and profiles of Cardinal Ratzinger uh, and, and his influence in the church. Um, and then after John Paul II died, as, uh, during that interregnum before the, the, the election of the, of the next pope, of his successor, it became more evident that it was quite likely to be Ratzinger who, who became pope. So it, it wasn't a complete shock, whereas when he resigned, I mean, everybody was just completely taken aback. It was a, a, a really shattering, an earthquake of a moment for the church because we hadn't had a pope resign for something like 600 years. And um, the Conservatives in particular were devastated, weren't they, by his resignation because he had become a real rallying point. He brought brought back um, the Tridentine Mass or or raised its kind of usage and profile in the church. And he seemed to be somebody who um, was kind of quietly toning down a lot of the radical reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Yes, that that's right. He he was a he was a mix of a pope, really. I mean, he 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 came across as a, a rather a shy man, clearly very studious. Uh, people who met who met him who uh, knew him personally said he was very charming, 
clearly an intellectual, very cerebral pope. So there was all that. And then uh, he could um, you know, be forceful. He, 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 he felt that the, that the reforms of the council had gone too far. He wanted to row back somewhat. Um, and, and, and so you had this sort of, you had this paradox almost within within benedict the the other thing of course that that um really mattered with benedict was that he was pope for only eight years but he was a prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith for tw about 27 years so he had a major influence on the church even before he he was elected pope um, yeah yes as many commentators he was known as um, God's Rottweiler during that time. And yes, and, and and a lot of that, you know, that image that we had of him as a as a hardliner comes from that era rather than from the papacy, and he he seemed he seemed to sort of a, a slightly, although he did do things like um, made life easier for those who wanted to worship using the Tridentine rite. In other words, he seemed to much. A kind of gentler individual as um, as Pope, but there were times when you did think that he almost didn't quite work out that being Pope was different to being prefect of the CDF or being a university professor. I mean, the the, the one of his biggest clangers, his biggest controversies, was when he made his address in 2006 at the University of Regensburg, which caused uproar, where he quoted a Byzantine emperor saying that um, Islam and Muhammad were about violence. Now, it's the kind of quote that you could put in a, a, um, a, a peer-reviewed article if you're a university professor with a major footnote. But, you know, this was the Pope. It, it wasn't quite the same as being a cloistered academic, but you felt sometimes that he didn't quite, he didn't quite get it was different. And I wonder also looking back whether he always took enough advice because there was that, that uproar over Regensburg. And then, then when he lifted um, the restrictions on the, the Tridentine rites, which you've already mentioned, it, it, the Tridentine rite wasn't just about mass. It, there were there was also um, a Tridentine rite Good Friday service. Yes, and so, that that yeah. included um, prayers about the Jews, which he did recognise were problematic. He attempted to rewrite them, and he rewrote one of them. It retained um, a prayer for the conversion of Jews, which which did not in in the 21st century did not go down well either and that caused more upset so you just wonder sometimes how wide is is his you know advice a group of advisors is there anybody he's showing these what he's doing to before he goes public um or is he surrounded by a group of yes men who just say your holiness that's fine and and we're also in awe of him because he was this renowned theologian I think you have a very fair point there, and it's very likely that that was what was happening, because there were other things um, that happened as well to do with the Society of St. Pius, um, 
and to do with um, statements that were quite really quite um, that people lots of people got offended by on um, homosexuality, for example. Yes. Well, some of those, some of the, his his remarks uh, or his statements, which caused offence, of course, happened when he was at the CDF. So, yes, you know, yes, in, of course. Back in two thousand, uh, he produced this document at the CDF called Dominus Iesus, in which he indicated that the Catholic Church was the only source of salvation and that it was the one church, um, and that others like the Church of England were ecclesial communities. Well. You know, there'd been efforts by both Anglicans and Roman Catholics for decades to improve relations between them. And suddenly um, the Anglicans are being told you're not even a church. Um, you know, again, maybe when he writes it in, in when he's in his study, it, it, it's, it seems to make sense to him. But somebody needed to say to him, have you thought about the implications of saying this? <laughs> I mean, it is what it is sort of what the church teaches, though, isn't it? Really, that's the, that's the Catholic view. Yes, but they also have attempted to, you know, to improve relations. And I don't think anybody up till then had ever suggested that the Church of England wasn't a proper church. Hmm. Um, I mean, they're still um, on the statute book as to a. Um, sort of a, a rejection of Anglican orders but um but at the same time um you know the Roman Catholic Church warmly welcomes the Archbishop of Canterbury to Rome and they don't perceive him as just a another English gentleman they think of him as a a leader of um of Anglicans so. yes and and the whole um setup of the ordinariate and um the um, recognition of of um, you know of um, Anglican liturgy in the subsequent rites um, do also um, show ongoing respect for yes, Anglicanism. Look, the, the the setting up of the ordinariat was another incident where you just sort of scratched your head and you thought, why did he do it like that? Um, <laughs> because uh, he he announced that. You know, there was to be this ordinaria which would enable Anglicans who were somewhat disaffected to uh, become Catholics. It also return retain a certain what they called Anglican patrimony. Um, so it's still use the same prayer book for even song or whatever. Um, but it didn't lead to floods of people even crossing the Tiber. But you know he. He didn't get the Vatican to alert the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rome Williams, about it in advance, which is just sort of not very courteous. And yet, in other ways, he will seem very courteous. So you just think, so what, what happened there? And, so, and that's a great shame because um, he and Rome Williams appeared to, in many ways, get on very well. You know, in some ways, they were ideally matched. You know, they were, they were both cerebral um university academics you know who who uh, to coin a phrase talked the same language in fact they taught the same the same languages over and over because they were both very fluent multilinguists and they could talk in french or german or russian or whatever um or english uh and you know th there was a lot of warmth unfortunately um 
the ordinariat incident didn't seem to cause problems for the 2010 visit to the UK. So we can see why he had the reputation that he had. But when he came to Britain, um, we got to see a very different Benedict um, than, than the Benedict of, you know, Rottweiler repute. And, yes, and there, there we saw, I, I went to the Mass at Birmingham, for example. Yes. And there we saw a man shining with holiness and humility and spirituality. Yes, and, Did, and that, was, that, was a, that was an absolutely fascinating visit on many levels because I think in advance of it, you know, in the months leading up to it, people wondered whether it would be a success because um, the church was divided and, 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 and Benedict was kind of at the centre of some of those divisions between more liberal Catholics and more conservative Catholics. And then there was anxiety over whether um, we'd have protests, you know, a massive protest. There was, a, there was an organisation that, that emerged at the time called Protest the Pope, uh, with vehement secularists saying, you know, that they, they thought a state visit from this cleric was completely wrong and, and, and sort of promising huge marches of protest. So their, their protests were minimal. And instead, um, Catholics of all stripes got really behind the visit. And that was a great thing because it, it seemed that it was possible for the Pope to be what we'd always as Catholics thought the Pope should be, which is to be a figure of unity and to be pontifex, to be the bridge yes. between different people. And 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 he managed that to a, a remarkable degree in that in that visit. And and also um not just for Catholics, but many other people uh, warmed to him in, in that visit. Um and a lot of people showed a great deal of interest in it. And the the protest marches were just a you know, a tiny trickle of people. So we saw we saw a very different man, and um, then then he resigned. And you, well, I certainly got the sense that while he was living in the monastery in the Vatican as Pope Emeritus, almost like a spiritual father or grandfather to Pope Francis, that he was then able to be the person he had really wanted to be all along, which is this um, much more retiring and. Um, a person interested in arts and the culture, you know, a musician yeah. and and someone who, who could continue to invest his time and thought into ideas. Yes. And to exploring uh, complex um, academic subjects and yes, not he... having to engage in political battles, which he clearly never really liked. Or had the stomach for, no. Yeah. Um, or even the kind of mental strength for, possibly. Um, I... I noticed that um, his biographer, um, Peter Seywald, um, he wrote, he's written several books about him and interviewed him many times and, and, and brought out a, a bit of a kind of blockbuster two-volume biography in the last few years. And in one of those books, um, Seywald asks Benedict, you know, who, as people will remember, was Joseph Ratzinger before he became Benedict, asked him if being appointed Archbishop of Munich, so that was back in 77, um, and before that he'd spent a couple of decades being an academic, 
So he asked him if being appointed to being Archbishop of Munich was the end of your personal happiness and all your dreams. And the Pope Emeritus answered, you could say that, yes. Oh, that's so. That's kind of sad in a way, it's isn't it? so poignant, isn't it? So yes. If, if he felt like that about just being appointed to Munich, how did he feel about being asked to then go on to Rome to run the CDF? and being elected Pope. And in a way, it, it rather took me by surprise reading that because I remember when, when he was elected Pope, when Joseph Ratzinger stood on the balcony of St. Peter's after being elected, and we were told he was taking the name of Benedict. I remember, I've seen photographs of it, it says on the balcony, he clenched his fists above his head in a sort of a gesture which looked triumphant. Yes, I know it did look triumphant. I thought it was triumphant. I didn't really understand where yes. he was truly coming from. Yes. So to think that being appointed an archbishop was the end of his happiness, you think, well, was this man's, the majority of this man's life a trial given up, you know, in, in, in service? It, it clearly indicates somebody who, who, rather like the late Queen, had a very strong sense of duty. Absolutely. And I think he, he did feel that um, it was a, a cup that he did not want to drink of, but that the God had called him to it so that he must drink of it. Yes, yes. But I think I think another thing about him that really struck me, and again, it comes out of this recent biography, is that this was a man who, as he got older, he found contemporary life more and more difficult to the extent it... it it caused him, I think, enormous anxiety. So in this book, he says, a hundred years ago, anyone would have found it absurd to speak of homosexual marriage. Today, anyone opposing it is socially excommunicated. Mm. Same goes for abortion and creating humans in a laboratory. Modern society is formulating an anti-Christian creed and opposing it is punished with social excommunication. It is only natural to fear this spiritual power of Antichrist. Well, I mean, this is a man who is living with a, a deep sense of foreboding mm. at the end of his life. Mm. So it, it, you would hope that, that, that also, but not expressed to the biographer, that he still retained a sense that you know, it all would eventually end well, uh, given his faith in Christ. Because without it, it's, it's just so pessimistic. Do, do, you think, um, do, do you think that now we will see resignations as a matter of course from future popes? What do you think Francis is feeling now is he is he um feeling kind of off the leash or or was he not kind of on the leash in the first place well um he he apparently has already written a letter of resignation and it's you know in a sealed envelope with the secretary of state and he said you know if it gets too much for me i'm you've got my letter 
Mm. Yes, that's absolutely right. But I, I um, think also I he's think... got a lot to do, though, still, hasn't he? Yes, yes. So you would imagine he would keep going till the end of his synodal process, for example. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, Benedict has demystified the papacy. This is now something you don't have to struggle on with as John Paul II did. But in other ways, he's possibly, in resigning, made it harder for other popes because you can imagine that but, um, the enemies of Francis will now be saying, well... Resign. <laughs> he, should, he should go. It's absolutely. Time to move on. And Actually, I hadn't thought of that, but that is absolutely right. Of course they will. Yeah, of course um, they will. So it, serving unto death... Uh, can be ex extremely difficult, but being able to resign can be a rod for your own back as well. Yeah, we could, could be, they could turn into the ecclesiastic equivalent of the Tory party. <laughs> Six popes in a summer kind of thing. Yes, well, let's, let's hope this is a bit that bad. But, um, so yes, I, I don't know if now, I mean, particularly if Francis um, resigned, it it would almost be turning the papers into something that you, that you do you do um, only do for a, a limited period of time. A, a job, not a calling. Yes, which, which might not be good actually for the papacy or the church long term, might it? Yes. Well, there's already clearly um, jostling for power or for getting your you know your candidate in into the top job already. Uh, you know when one of them dies and they elect a new one but I mean could you imagine if there was um limited terms of office or whatever um yes I mean no. that would it would become a bit like the American presidency wouldn't it that you have you have a few you have a kind of if, if they ended up with the papacy being something that was a term of office be like the American presidency where um if you say the first three years you can do quite a lot but then, after three years, so the last two years of your presidency, you're, 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 you've got one eye on, um, on the next election. See if you can get re-elected, or if you've already been elected twice and you can't stand again. Uh, those last couple of years, you're just really a lame duck. And then, then you could end up with the Trump problem of a pope saying, "Well, actually, I'm not going to resign or step down. I want to stay yeah, yeah. pope till the very end." Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes so, so goodness knows what we might we might get yet. Um, I I uh, I was very taken by that Netflix film of the two popes. Yes. Did you see that? Yes. Yes. With Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins, and there was a there was a sense in. You got the sense in watching that that I know some of it was fictional that 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 here were two very different individuals, but what 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 I found attractive was that they've they they found a way to have um, uh, empathy for one another. Well, well, I did feel knowledge one another's gifts and failings, and you yes. would hope that in that, even if the actual detail was fictional the sentiment was authentic i do feel as though it was and um as though despite efforts by factions um um 
to kind of create a sense of rivalry in a two-pope situation. But in fact, both um, the Pope and the Pope Emeritus refused to go along with that and insisted on being rather good friends and supportive of each other. Um, and in fact, but it is said that Benedict had very short shrift with people who did try and undermine Francis in his presence, you know, and really showed them the door. So um, on the other hand, it ha it's also being said that when he issued his um, letter um, abrogating the um, Tridentine rite, that Benedict yeah. might, might have been upset by that. Ganswein has um, been hinting at this, hasn't he, recently? Yes. But I wonder if, uh, I mean, that was really quite recently, wasn't it? I, I wonder if, if Benedict XVI by then was almost too frail and you know too sick to really become in, you know, that kind of engaged with that as a row. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But I think I think one of the things that, that that's that's interesting about the, the situation of having two popes, which we you know we haven't had, well, I guess in the time of the Avignon Popes, we used to have about three at once, didn't we? Into based in different places. But um one of the things that that seemed to happen with Benedict when he was Pope, his final days as Pope is that he felt incredibly isolated. And I remember talking to somebody who knew him quite well in the year before he resigned. And at that stage, there was no thought he was going to resign. But I was told that after the, the theft of documents from his desk by his butler, he passed them on to a journalist. And, you know, there were other leaks as well, that he no longer trusted anybody. Mm. And that's an incredibly lonely place to be. Yes. And um, and he must have felt so isolated. But with Francis, he had somebody there in the Vatican who who knew about the burden of that office. Yes. And that, that must have been a helpful thing. Helpful to both of them, probably. Yeah, well, certainly I would have thought help, helpful to Francis to have somebody there yeah. who knew um, who knew what what that that colossal burden must be like. And it is huge, isn't it? And especially to expect um, someone, you know, who's in the definitely the third half of their third third of their life. Um, yes. The latter, you know, the the, the sixth um, sixth of their life. Um Please. To ask them to do that, it's a big ask of somebody. And um, that's why I, I wonder if resignations might become more frequent simply because um, the job's getting harder. Is, well, um, the job's getting harder. And, uh, and also, um, you know, if they do pick uh, elderly men, um, you know, they're not, they're not at, their, at their fittest for that burden it's it's even more difficult it would it would be a burdensome role any time of life but at that particular time of life and with infirmity looming um yes and then with all the changes um in the modern world especially in communications technology and uh, you know often old people are not that literate with those changes and no matter how um good your staff are you're not, you know, the people that in those high offices need to understand themselves what's going on. They need to be um, yes. even just reading or 
or they just need to be able to to understand yes where and their flock course, is coming from and especially and, the younger members yeah and of course the other thing is with a pope um unlike the president of the united states or the prime minister of britain or the king or queen of the united kingdom the pope doesn't have a spouse to go back to <laughs> who can on whose shoulder you know they can they can uh, cry you know they they it is it is it's, it's quite possibly the loneliest role in the world it really must be that's a very good point yeah and um it's possible yes that, that some of the maybe he did um experience that that um towards the end of his time as pope and that yeah. contributed to his his decision to step down yeah so Catherine, what do you think happens now then um, after the funeral, which will be over um, very soon? Yes. Well, we the 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 main thing, of course, is that that what normally happens after a papal funeral won't be happening. There won't be the election of a pope. We have the pope already. So the cardinals who've gone to Rome for the funeral um, w w won't be uh, gathering for a conclave. They'll be going home. I, I imagine that those of them who are there, though, might well be having conversations together about what comes next. If if a, a, the Pope Emeritus in his 90s has just died and, and the, the Pope himself is 86, you must inevitably think about, you know, even if it's nature that takes its course rather than um, uh, him resigning, it, it could be relatively soon. So I think there there will be some speculation, therefore, um, mm. about who comes next after Francis. Um, as you said earlier, um, there's no indication that he wants to stand down at the moment. He's got he's he's clearly got a lot in his entry. He's he wants that synodal process to to be completed. Um, but I think I think I think somehow the death of the Pope Emeritus must draw some attention to um, what comes after Francis. Well, thank you, Catherine. And I, I look forward to speaking to you again and to exploring um, what comes next in thank more you. detail as, as things develop. I'm looking forward to the tablets um, special edition on Pope Benedict, um, which has got a lot of um, uh, really excellent, I haven't read it yet, but excellent looking material. So... And it will be available online yes. um, uh, very shortly at thetablet.co.uk. Yeah, so I think the team's done a great job. And thank you for your contribution to that issue, which is really an uh, absolutely fascinating read. Um, it was fascinating to put it together, yes. Yes, but I hope people find it of interest. Yeah. They will. Thank you, Catherine. It's been thank a real uh, pleasure to talk to you. And um, thank you so much for making the time um, for the tablet. Thanks very much.